in the financial sector, there's always been a lot of surveillance. And we sort of accept as normal that a lot of our transactions just get handed over to the government by default in the U.S. That financial surveillance is being increasingly extended onto cryptocurrency. And the reason that's so interesting is because the entire ethos of the cryptocurrency space was, in fact, to fight against this type of surveillance. As we see that financial surveillance being extended onto cryptocurrency, we have this really interesting moment to reflect on not only whether it makes sense for that surveillance to happen in the crypto space, but also whether it makes sense for it to happen at all, including in the traditional financial system. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode within Fawcett Intelligent Corporation Group. This is funded by the Zcash Foundation, and it's proposed to highlight the value of shooter transactions and what we lose by giving them up, different privacy and security risks, opportunities, implications, and tools that we may or may not be aware of yet. And we are inviting wonderful people that are leading the way in this broader space and onboarding more and more folks um, to these shared goals. We had a Zuko earlier. We had Andrew Miller earlier and a few really wonderful folks, including Why Are You Sleeping? So many protocol labs and other folks as well. But now we have the wonderful Marta Becher here today. Uh, we're really excited to have. Marta is wearing many, many hats. I'm hoping that you tell us a little bit more about them in a second, because they're definitely too many for me to probably do a good job at introducing. But your main head right now is with the Falcon Foundation. And so I'm really, really happy that you're here in this capacity You've been at multiple Fawcett events so far, and we've really had the pleasure to collaborate a little bit closer with you lately. And so really, really excited that you're here. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. And maybe we're just starting with the first question, which I think you can do a much better job at that I can do. And that is roughly, what are you currently working on? And maybe explain a little bit about the many projects that you're collaborating on. And how did you first get interested in this broader topic of privacy, security, and the work that you do on this front? Sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always so great to be a part of any Foresight uh, event, uh, virtual or otherwise. Um, really always so incredible and such amazing groups of people and in incredible high-level thinking happening at these events. So I'm just absolutely delighted to be here. Um, so I'm a cryptocurrency and civil liberties attorney. Um, I was a technology attorney. Um, and back in 2015, I got interested in cryptocurrency. The reason that I got interested in it was really because I could see the civil liberties benefits of cryptocurrency, the ways that you could import the privacy and anonymity and censorship resistance and resistance to surveillance into the online world um, using cryptocurrency. Um, so I became a, a cryptocurrency lawyer, um, ended up becoming the general counsel and head of policy at Protocol Labs, uh, uh, working on uh, launching the Filecoin, uh, we're launching Filecoin and then uh, launching the Filecoin Foundation uh, and, and being president and running the Filecoin Foundation. Um, I'm also a special counsel at EFF. Um, I'm on the Zcash Foundation board and also the Blockchain Association board. Um, so a lot of what I do today is both sort of building the decentralized web through the Filecoin universe um, and also um, a, a lot of work on the policy in this space, especially as it relates to civil liberties and privacy. Oh, that's a lot of boards that you're on. So thanks for all the work that you do there. Definitely lots of familiar organizations in our ecosystem there. So maybe we can just go through a few different layers of how people can actually think about their own privacy. Because I think coming, having a, like a policy and technology lens on the whole system, I think allows you to think really 
kind of like on a small scale, how does it in impact individuals, but then also on the large scale, what are some potentially like geopolitical things we should be worried about or, or could be excited about the opportunities within? Let's have the positive framing on this. Um, but maybe we start on the individual layer first. And personally, if I think about the next perhaps five years or something, what are some main privacy security risks that you think that people should be more aware of, especially perhaps in the context of AI, but even just within the crypto commerce space in general? What are a few things that keep you up at night uh, in that space? And how do you think uh, that we may be able to develop tools more on the consumer or on the personal end to help folks protect their own privacy? Sure, Absolutely. You know, I think it's probably um, one of the things about this space that's really interesting is that in the financial sector, there's always been a lot of of surveillance, um, sort of by default, uh, even in the U.S. A lot of people's financial transactions just get turned over to the government um, for, for no reason, not because they're suspicious, just because they're above a certain amount. Um, and we sort of accept as normal that a lot of our transactions just get handed over to the government by default in the U.S., um, in the traditional banking system. And one of the things that's really interesting that we've been seeing for the last few years is that that financial surveillance is being increasingly extended onto cryptocurrency. And the reason that's so interesting is because the entire ethos of the cryptocurrency space, um, was really, you know, the, the sort of raison d'etre for the, for the, uh, for cryptocurrency, right? Was in fact to fight against this type of surveillance. Um, and so I think we're at this really interesting inflection point because as we see that financial surveillance being extended onto cryptocurrency, um, we have this really interesting moment to reflect on not only whether it makes sense for that surveillance to happen in the crypto space, but also whether it makes sense for it to happen at all, um, including in the traditional financial system. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting moment for us to um, think about that. And, and I think that we have a lot of really difficult uh, battles ahead. Just in some examples, um, of course, what we've seen with Tornado Cash, what we've seen with um, the infrastructure bill provisions regarding cryptocurrency, um, and um, most recently, uh, a bill from Senator Warren um, that is um, very, uh, sort of creates a uh, mass surveillance regime for crypto. Um, just as a few examples of the the places where we're seeing the battles play out about not only cryptocurrency, but also financial surveillance in general. Yeah, could you maybe speak a little bit more to these three examples? I think most folks have probably heard about the tornado cash, but if you could just provide a few different pointers, what are you specifically worried about there, or what's coming along the pipeline here? Yeah, so one, um, so one example is so. Unfortunately, we are currently in the sort of post FTX world, right? Um, and so I think it's a moment where um, cryptocurrency can really be a target for um, for many things. One of them being surveillance. So during the FTX hearing in the Senate, Senator Warren introduced a bill called the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. Um, and this act is, I mean, honestly, I've been working on legislation in the cryptocurrency space for, for eight years now, and definitely the most egregious bill that I've seen. Um, this would effectively do two things. The first thing it would do is it would, it would grind the entire blockchain ecosystem in the U.S. to a halt. Um, and the second thing it would do is it would effectively ban privacy enhancing technologies, including privacy coins, but also more generally. Um, so the, the first thing that it does is it, it specifically targets basically every participant in a blockchain network. So that includes validators, miners, software developers, um, wallet creators, whether it's custodial or self-hosted. Um, and, and also anyone who has any control over a protocol. So again, really, specifically attempting to target software developers 
Um, and it, what it does is it says that all of those participants need to register as money service businesses, which means that they have to register with the government, have very complex uh, know your customer and anti-money laundering programs that they implement and have to report um, the personal details of the people who use their software um, and, and the details of those transactions to the government by default, even when those transactions aren't suspicious. Um, and the problem with that isn't just that it's onerous. The problem with that is it's literally impossible, right? The whole point of blockchain technology is if you're a validator, right? Um, you, you don't, you, you aren't able to get the personal details and turn them over to the government. And so, um, so first of all, it's just literally impossible to comply with and, and would really grind the entire ecosystem to a halt. Um, but the second thing that it does, which is, um, you know, e- equally terrifying is that it basically makes it illegal for any financial institution, which includes all of those money service businesses that I just mentioned, um, it makes it illegal for any of them to interact with any privacy enhancing technology, which includes privacy coins, um, which is just bonkers. And so I think this is one of the areas where people who care about cryptocurrency should care a lot about this, of course, but people who care a lot about privacy in general, regardless of their view of cryptocurrency, um, should care a lot because these same arguments that are being used against cryptocurrency expand not just to cryptocurrency, but actually all anonymity enhancing technologies, which includes technologies like Tor and frankly encryption. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's actually pretty shocking to see a senator um, uh, so broadly target anonymity enhancing technologies. And I think anyone who cares about privacy should really care about um, this bill. Yeah, well, relatively terrifying. And so when you said that it could grind the whole ecosystem to a halt, you mean the US-centric ecosystem? Do you think it's mostly going to push organizations outside of the US then and just like make US a little bit less of a competitive force in that whole arena, perhaps as well? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's the thing about it is that it's specifically targeting developers, um, wallet providers, validators, miners. Um, and anyone who has control over a protocol, which could include something like if you have a governance token and you vote with it, right? So unfortunately for any of those participants in a blockchain network, if this bill were to be passed, um, they would be in a position where they would have to be registered as a money service business. And I think that's just not possible. So the options are, you know, don't comply or leave the US or, you know, I mean, there really are, it's, it's very, it's very limited, right? Um, and so I, I think the bill is a disaster. Now, notably, I don't know, I don't think the bill is going to pass necessarily, um, it, like in and of itself, like as a standalone. Um, but I am concerned about it. And the reason I'm concerned about it is what you see happen with these bills often is they just sit around for years. They don't go anywhere, but then there's an omnibus bill. So similar to what we saw with the infrastructure bill, there's like some thousand page bill that has absolutely nothing to do with cryptocurrency. And then what happens is, um, they will shove something in about cryptocurrency. So for example, with the infrastructure bill, this was Biden's bill that had, again, nothing to do with cryptocurrency. And there's a section of the bill that's like, okay, well, how are you going to pay for these trillions of dollars of, of spending? And so they said, well, I'll bet if we add additional surveillance to cryptocurrency, we will somehow magically get $16 billion. And so they just put into the pay for section of the bill, well, we'll pay for this with these surveillance requirements in the tax code. And they added these surveillance requirements to the tax code um, regarding cryptocurrency. And so the problem is, if you have a bill like this sitting around and you don't have the civil liberties community speaking up about it and, and fighting back against it, if you just let it sit, 
then what happens is when you have an omnibus bill come along and they're shoving language in, they pull from this language, right? And you end up having a must-pass bill where there's no opportunity for debate um, and you just have something shoved through um, with absolutely no amendment or feedback. So I think it's really, even though I do not think that it is likely that this bill will pass as a standalone, I think it's really critical that with something so egregious that we really make a, a point of publicly saying how egregious this kind of language is so that it's not shoved into an omnibus bill in the future. If you now think that folks, or like if I'm now extremely frustrated with this bill, what do I best do? What are some of the channels that people can actually take action on? Because it does sound like organizations like EFF or something, maybe great channels like here to push things through. Or what can people listening to this basically do if, if they want to help? Totally. Um, so... Um, a couple of things. So the first thing is there are some really amazing organizations that are doing fantastic work in fighting back against bills like this. So this includes Fight for the Future, um, EFF, Coin Center, Blockchain Association, um, you know, organizations that are doing a fantastic job, um, uh, navigating in this space. Um, so supporting those organizations, um, also the Crypto Council for Innovation. Um, just some examples. Um, but I think the second thing is, Right now, uh, we're waiting for this bill to be reintroduced. It was introduced at the very end of the last session, and I think it'll be reintroduced this session uh, in probably not too long, I would guess. And um, when it's reintroduced, I think it's another good moment for people to talk about it in public and talk about you know, how egregious it is um, and um, the effects that it would have in driving innovation out of the U.S. and really shutting down the entire Space. Um, so I think when this bill is reintroduced, it's a really good moment for us to talk publicly about why, why this bill is is completely impracticable and um, you know and so problematic for privacy and civil liberties. Yeah, that sounds rather terrifying. Are there any specific things that you see individuals not doing that they should be doing in terms of like I guess like personal hygiene in terms of a privacy consideration that are just like relatively easy to implement already that people should be aware of. Like we've all heard like about recent the things that you think are relatively underexplored right now where people should be taking a bit more questions, basically. Yeah. So, you know, one of the big ones that I just find so baffling about the cryptocurrency space is that everyone seems to use Telegram instead of Signal. Um, and this is so basic, right? It's literally just what, I mean, it's literally just one app or the other, but I do not understand how a community that cares so much about privacy and civil liberties can, can use an, an app that is so, um, insecure where, I mean, you're, you're effectively, I mean, really, you effectively have, uh, this stuff stored in plain text on servers. You know, this is not encrypted. This is, it's really shocking that people continue to use Telegram. Um, a very quick and easy fix to make people, people's communications, you know, just infinitely more private and secure is just to switch to signal. Um, and just, just stop using Telegram and switch to signal. Um, I think, um, I, I think again, I, I it, it's really baffling to me. And, um, I, I just got back from, uh, East Denver. And it's just, it's just always shocking to me how many people in the community don't even have signal and are, are either just using text messages, which, okay, fine, or way worse using, using Telegram, which, um, I, I really think, I really think it's hard for us to talk about how much we care about privacy and security. And then at the same time be using such an insecure app for our communications, which are so sensitive. Right. Um, so I, that's, that's, um, that's one very, very easy very quick fix. 
Yeah, uh, I asked everyone at East Denver if we can please do Signal uh, instead of Telegram. And uh, sometimes it was just, yeah, it was very, very sticky. Um, and yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's a mystery to me. Um, but here we go. Um, okay, wonderful. Thanks. I think having talked a little bit about the general civil liberty, there's also, as I think as you for sure saw at East Denver, also a bunch of new kind of companies building in the space, right? And building really on better new privacy preserving technologies. So I'm really curious, you know, are there a few that piqued your interest and even just pointing to specific applications that you think are relatively interesting that are coming out now in the general privacy space, whether or not they have privacy as their explicit goal or almost as a collateral that comes from ZK enabled XYZ, that would be really, really curious to know. Yeah, absolutely. So one that I'm using a bunch right now um, is uh, Zingo. Um, so there, there has been, uh, you know, sort of slowdown in, um, Zcash transactions for a while. And, um, Zingo is a new wallet that just launched recently, um, that has sort of fixed that issue and made it so that you can make near instantaneous transactions using Zcash again. Um, so this is sort of a relatively recent, um, relatively recent, uh, development. Um, and that's just been sort of, uh, sent out to the universe. Um, there's also a wallet called Y Wallet that is also, um, has also fixed, um, that issue with Zcash and made it possible to make very quick transactions again. Um, but the thing that I love about Zingo is that it's also very user friendly. Um, and the user interface is, is really good for, for a crypto application, which I think is so important, right? So often in crypto, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know if we maybe like, if it's hard to use, we maybe feel cooler or something. Um, but I think so often the user interface aspect is is overlooked. And so I've I've been impressed with the the Zingo wallet and think it's a great way to onboard people to to the Zcash universe. Um and that's that's relatively a relatively recent addition. So very excited to see that um fixing the the uh delays we had seen uh in, in recent months. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I did not know about this yet. That's really, really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think the whole user interface bit is also, I think, the problem with Signal a little bit. Like sometimes, for example, for me, I often have trouble even uploading photos into Signal when I'm trying to send them. I have to literally go through my photos and then send them through that. It seems to be a bit more buggy and Telegram seems a bit more playful, easy, kind of easy to switch and so forth. Also through that, I think a lot more scammy because the friction to like just starting up random group chats is is lower on Telegram. So there's also a lot of cost to this. That may be one of the reasons for for that one as well, where it took off more. Okay. Well, I think those are like, yeah, a few, a few really great examples. And I'm glad that Azikesh is, uh, is making that a bit smoother. I wonder, at least in my East Denver experience, there were a bunch of relatively interesting, more cryptography and privacy focused tools that were also specifically interesting in relationship to AI. And I wonder in general, to what extent do you think AI machine learning will feature in the broader offense defense dynamic of privacy preserving technologies in your worldview as you see it right now are there any major risks that you're concerned about are there any major opportunities that you think we can really make use of now with many of the tools yeah totally um you know i think there's a couple of things that are so i think i think as with many things um one of the areas where we'll that are is going to matter a lot in in whether ai can really thrive is is copyright law um, so, you know, it's, it's really shocking how often copyright law is the driver as to whether or not technological progress can happen. Um, but AI is really one where I see copyright as being 
um, potentially really a, a roadblock um, for AI in general. Um, and so what we're seeing right now is just some of the first copyright lawsuits um, in the in the AI space and in, in generative in generative AI. Um, and I think the way that those play out in the U.S. Um, is going to have a major impact on the future of that entire technology, similar to the way that we saw copyright um, being so problematic, you know, being so determinative and how copyright um, uh, played a role in things like um, Google Books. And even frankly, with Google Books, um, we still see we still see uh, copyright being such an issue with things like um, the Internet Archive lawsuits, um, where the publishers are suing the Internet Archive for digital lending. Um, so, so much of technology right now is really held up on copyright law. And in AI, it matters so much because how you use data, how you can use data sets, right? And what data you can use is absolutely critical to questions around, you know, whether and how you can train, uh, you, you, you can have training data and, and whether that training data can be um, you know, what it can be representative of, right? Whether you're using very specific, very narrow training data, um, like whether you're, you're limited to only using emails from Enron, <laughs> which is like the data set that a lot of people had access to, um, or whether you can actually use a much broader set. So I think, um, these are actually really interesting questions. And in my past life, I was a, um, I started out as an intellectual property technology lawyer. And so these these questions have been really interesting to me, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this area plays out. Interesting. I mean, could, could you speculate a little bit? Let's say the copyright recent precedent cases in that case, I guess, turned out to be rather restrictive. Then how do you see AI tools being developed? And how do you see that affecting more of the, I guess, like privacy and use case concerns that users may have? Can I see my question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the copyright, it's not that having copyrighted material in the input corpus itself violates copyright. It's the concern with these AI tools in copyright is if the output is too close to any particular input, then the concern is that the output is effectively a close, you know, a derived work in, in, in the legal terms of copyright law uh, is close enough to uh, one of the inputs as to violate the copyright of that input. If the output were far enough away from any one input while still being representative of the statistical aggregate of inputs, then uh, I don't even think our broken copyright law would necessarily hold that to be a violation. Is that correct? Yeah. So th basically you're, what you're outlining is what I would, what I would say is, um, perhaps how the law ought to be. And we'll, but it's sort of like, we'll, we'll see how it plays out in the court. Um, so my view, and, and let me say, let me say, this is my view, but I don't think that, but, but it is, le it is left, left to be seen what the courts actually say. But so sort of one big question here is, Okay, if you are using this giant, if you are using information, um, like you're going out and scraping the web, right? And using that to learn something, like, is that copyright infringement, right? Like you're just looking at the data, using it to learn things, right? And my view is that ought, that certainly should not be copyright infringement. Um, like that in and of itself 
should not be infringement. Um, the arguments that copyright holders would make would be, well, when you do that, you have to make a copy. Um, and then the question would be, well, is that it, to the extent that you do make a copy um, as part of that, is that fair use, right? So that has nothing to do with the, out so that piece of it has nothing to do with the output. That's just the inputs. So like just looking at the, just just taking things in, should that be copyright infringement? My answer is absolutely not. Um, and I think you can look at a variety of, um, you can look at a variety of, of cases around fair use um, at, for things like showing thumbnails or other, other, other areas where, um, where it hasn't been. And I think anything that a human should be able to do, a machine should be able to do, right? If a machine, if a human can look at something and learn from it, why shouldn't a machine be able to do that? If I, in the privacy of my home, make, use my copier machine to make a private copy of some copyrighted material and don't share that and, and certainly don't sell it, uh, I'm, am I in copyright violation? Yeah. So I, I agree with you that that's not a public display, which is required under U.S. copyright law. Um, and again, I agree with you that that should not be copyright infringement. Nonetheless, when, what we've seen is there are multiple lawsuits right now. One of the lawsuits is against um, Midjourney and other generative AI companies. Another one is about um, uh, open source, um, it is about um, uh, uh, GitHub's um, Copilot. Uh, which is, uh, which is generative code. Um, and so we see these, we see these lawsuits. And I think important question as to sort of the, the intake. Um, the second question, which is very difficult is what happens when on the other end, something comes out that looks a lot like the thing that you, you took in. Right. And that is that. And, and that is a, a much harder question. Um, and, uh, and that is something that is 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 a really important battlefield because the things that happen on that battlefield are are going to affect the space you know more broadly. And so um, uh, I think bo both of these things are at issue in in these lawsuits. And I'm really interested to see how they play out. And I think it's a really important line to hold. Just if I so I may follow the um, uh, so. Anybody can sue anyone over anything. So the, simply the existence of lawsuits itself is not necessarily that predictive that there's a genuine problem here. Uh, the issue is which of these lawsuits do we need to take seriously? Um, uh, the GitHub, GitHub Copilot case in particular surprises me because presumably the GitHub corpus is the code on GitHub, which is already restricted by GitHub to be open source. So if it's open source, what's the problem? Um, and uh, the, the final thing is with regard to it being too near to any one input, I do sympathize with that case. Uh, these, these systems can produce output, which can be very close to, to some particular input. Uh, but all of these, you know, part of the AI algorithmic technology, which is very well developed at this point, is a um, a nearest neighbor search, uh, which could be used to pre-filter the output so that it's not extremely close to any one input. And if they did that, would that would that 
avoid most of the concern. Yeah, totally. So I think these are, I think these are very, um, uh, like very important questions. So first of all, I think your point about anyone can sue anyone for anything is a great one. Um, and I, I agree that the mere existence of these lawsuits doesn't mean that the plaintiffs in that case have a particularly strong, um, particularly strong argument. Um, what we'll see is we'll see a motion to dismiss relatively early on. And, um, you know, we'll see whether these lawsuits get thrown out at that early stage or whether you'll end up with a situation where you, you're really, go, you know, doing discover, deep in discovery, um, you know, having to rack up quite a lot of legal fees in order to defend this kind of suit. And I should note that that in a, while it is true that these arguments don't um, necessarily the fact that someone is sued doesn't mean that the arguments are valid. That is certainly true. Um, and also, I would say the the fact that these lawsuits happen is um, really unfortunate to the extent that there aren't good arguments because you end up in a situation where innovators end up spending a lot of time and money and resources fighting lawsuits that may not have great arguments. Um, and so hopefully what we'll see is that there's some pretty clear laws and lines come out of this where in the future, when an innovator gets sued for something that shouldn't be copyright infringement, the lawsuits just get thrown out um, early on without having to engage in discovery. So I could completely, completely agree with you on that. Well, while we're at it, uh, we have lots of other um, questions that this uh, that so, Danny, may go ahead. Michael, if you'd like to unmute, just go for it. Yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, I really hope that they don't regulate the models because there's so much bullshit happening. Uh, but my question is a little bit higher level, just around privacy in general. It seems like, you know, the implicit perspective here is maximum privacy is definitely good. Um which I'm honestly not convinced of fully yet because I can imagine a world where, you know, let's say on-chain activity is in private and then it is actually like a more communicative, almost collaborative world because I can see, oh, wow, like look what Mark's doing. That's cool. Let me learn about that. Whereas if, you know, all on-chain activity is private, that communication kind of goes away. Um, and so I'm fully open to being convinced that privacy is definitely maximum privacy is definitely the move. Um, but could you, yeah, I guess just share your perspective high level on why exactly privacy is in fact the move for on-chain activity? Totally. Um, so I think it's a great point. And this is sort of one of the fundamental, um, one of the fundamental uh, tensions in, in this space. Um, what I would say is I think that privacy isn't the same thing as secrecy. What I think of when I think of privacy is choice. So you have the choice of who you share your information with and what information you're sharing um, when you are private by default. Whereas in a world without privacy, you don't have that choice, right? So you certainly, in a world in which there are protect privacy protections, you certainly have the ability to share um, who you are, what you're doing. That's always an option. Um, but in a world where privacy isn't the default, you don't have the option of, of being private. So I would say like at a high level, I would think of it more as um, having the choice um, to have uh, to have the, uh, to having the choice to sh to share what you want to share and not share what you don't want to share. 
Um, and I think like higher levels, like zooming out even further, um, I think that this type of tension often comes up in the case of this question of privacy versus, um, you know, the needs of law enforcement, for example. Um, and um, that is another tension that's a, a really sort of tricky one. Um, but I actually think there we have a pretty clear answer as well, which is I think that the way that, at least in the U.S., the way that we handle the balance between um, people's civil liberties and the needs of law enforcement is that if someone wants to get information about a particular person, um, then what they need to do is they need to get a warrant. Um, and they need to, if law enforcement has to have probable cause, they have to go to a judge and say, here's, here's my probable cause. And a judge has to issue a warrant. Um, and that's really how we, how we strike that balance. And so for me, the thing that's so out of whack here is, you know, that's very clear. The fourth amendment is very clear. If you want to get information about a citizen of the United States, in order to do that, you need to get a warrant. Yet somehow we have found ourselves in a world in which our financial transactions are turned over to the government by default en masse without a warrant. So our financial transactions every day are being turned over by financial institutions to the government with no warrant. So we're in this world in which that very clear balance between privacy and civil liberties and law enforcement is completely off because law enforcement just gets information about us without a warrant, which is, to me, an obvious unconstitutional uh, violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, but unfortunately, the reason that that happens is because of the third party doctrine, which is this idea that because we've given our information to third parties, i.e. financial institutions, we have given up our reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. Um, and, and that is so crazy because if you think about the, the amount of information we share with the government, um, excuse me, with third parties every day. It's literally every second, right? Like all of us are sharing information with a third party right at this very moment. Um, as we, you know, from 10 different devices, 10 different ways, our location, um, our, um, uh, you know, we're sharing information with Zoom, with our ISP, right? Our entire lives are lived through third parties. And so we no longer live in a world where we actually have the protection of the Fourth Amendment because this exception, this third party doctrine has really swallowed the rule. Um, so that is the, that is the, that is the thing that I'm really, um, uh, fighting against and that I think it's really important that we, uh, take a stand on. Cool. I, Thanks. That was great response. Great and terrifying. Uh, I really want to see if Denise has a question here. You know, I was just gonna. I was just gonna add to the discussion on uh, on copyright, um, and maybe I, we don't want to return to that that um, that magnet. But one of the things to throw in, um, uh, uh, Mark, is that um, whereas in the U.S., a lot of copyright is is court determined, in that we have this this uh, fair use sort of uh, approach, in that if somebody does uh, uh, copy or uh, reused uh, data, we can actually balance the, the benefits of this. Uh, most uh, countries have a much more statutory model for this, which means on, on one hand, uh, there's sort of a much bigger open question when you have a new use arising. Um, and the default is, is that you can't do uh, uh, that kind of thing, which can be really problematic. 
Um, and the other thing is, is that often those court decisions or even just debates like this can play a really important role in framing the discussion. So uh, my big concern right now is a lot of people, particularly in the sort of AI art space, um, see this as something that potentially will deprive people of livelihoods, which is often an argument that's made about technology before technology has an effect uh, in the market. And so what we often see is that lawmakers will attempt to uh, preempt that problem by maybe redirecting funds or finding an opportunity to extract value and then redirect it to someone else. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the risk in, in this area is you end up with a statutory agreement that, uh, for instance, requires in the same way as um, Marta has described in the, the, the uh, financial surveillance space, where you say, well, only these kinds of AI systems can operate. For instance, centralized AI systems where we can extract revenue from the profits of a big company like OpenAI, but certainly we can't allow people to be running their own uh, rogue machine learning on their own machines, because who knows what 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 jobs they could be putting out by creating their their own pictures. So that's the sort of problem. And that's why these discussions are so, so important. Setting the scene and making people understand that this doesn't necessarily remove jobs. It creates jobs and makes jobs easier for everyone. Not sure if Mara, you want to comment uh, to this? Uh... No, I think, I think what Danny said is exactly right. Um, I think, I think a big headline in the U.S. is that you know, in general, in court cases in the U.S., in in copyright, when you look at it, there's a lot of really great support for this general idea that when you use copyrighted works as inputs and no human is experiencing that expression, but instead it's just a computer that's processing that expression and using it for something other than human experience, that that's almost per se fair use. So we do have a lot of really, really good support for that in the United States. Um, and my worry is that if, you know, like in this case, when you have really sympathetic, um, you know, sympathetic plaintiffs, right? Artists, right? And you have this great groundswell of support for people who are like, oh my God, these artists work is being used and it's unfair and, you know, whatever it is that, you know, my, the worry is that that, in my view, very important precedent, you know, could not be followed or could be undermined because I think it is so important that, you know, machines are able to do things that 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 humans are able to do i.e go in and learn something from things and and when it's not um uh when it's just sort of processing it and not actually uh pu publicly displaying it for for sort of human consumption so i think this is a really important precedent it's really important that precedent holds um even where you have very sympathetic plaintiffs who um you know i i think it's one of those things where but, you know, it's one of these cases where you end up with um, bad facts make bad law, as they say. And and while I don't think this is exactly bad facts, um, uh, I do think that it's it's difficult because I think a lot of us can sympathize with where artists are coming from here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, uh, Christopher, next. All right, go for it, Christopher. Uh, sure. Um uh, not in regards to the rather long comment I posted, um, but just touching on, I guess, a lot of your remarks are moderately US-centric, which is, of course, understandable. Um, but I, I'm just interested to know 
your views on GDPR because that seems to me to be somewhat different to the approach in the US of being handing all the information over to the government by default and also how multinational software corporations, for instance, uh, protect customer data and maintain data locality? Yeah, it's such a good question. So, um, so I am a, I am a U.S. lawyer. So yes, I do apologize for the U.S. centricness and, and a civil liberties lawyer at that. So I like rely on like having the constitution in order to be able to make these arguments. Right. Um, but I would say when it comes to GDPR, um, I think, so first of all, I should say, I think reasonable minds can differ on GDPR, um, and sort of whether GDPR has had a positive or negative impact. Um, I think there are some areas, I, I think, I think it's messy, right? I think many, like GDPR is an example of a very messy law where there are some really good things that came out of it and some really bad things that came out of it. Um, I think on the one hand, um, being able to see what data people have about you, um, uh, by people, I mean, uh, large corporations, um, and being able to download that information and, and, and look at it and have that transparency, um, is, is really quite positive and I don't think would really exist in it without um, GDPR um, at scale. And so I think that's one of the things that GDPR has, has, has done really well. Um, I think that, um, you know, fundamentally uh, the, the number of human hours, <laughs> like just, just, just have, you know, living in the Silicon Valley and having a lot of um, uh, lawyers as, as friends and contacts and just seeing the sheer amount of, um, of time and effort that has gone into compliance with GDPR is both, you know, I think both good and bad, right? On the one hand, it, it has, it made, it made privacy, uh, it, it put privacy on the map, right? Every board, every corporate board in everywhere in the world has to care about privacy, right? And they have to, you know, know that there's a chief privacy officer who's, you know, like they, they, people care about data privacy now because of GDPR at the highest levels of every organization. Um, and also the compliance burden that it has put onto companies, I think is easy for something like Google to manage because they have infinite resources, but it's very, very difficult, um, for when you get down to smaller companies and I think has made it, um, difficult to compete, um, uh, for, for smaller companies that have to, have that compliance burden. So again, I think reasonable minds can differ. Um, and I think that, I think that it's messy. I think there are good things. And I think that, um, at the same time, uh, it, it's, it's, it's difficult whenever you have anything that imposes, uh, really, uh, onerous compliance requirements to, to, to make it fair across the, the playing field. As a small nonprofit, I can very much agree with this. <laughs> it's difficult. Uh, okay. Buck, you have your hand up again. Yeah. So the third-party doctrine, uh, that was a really interesting element here. And uh, since the idea is that we chose to disclose the information to a third party, and that was a choice, it's only a choice if we have the choice not to. So that seems like it makes a strong constitutional argument that we have a constitutional right to transact in Zcash because in that case, we're not disclosing it to a third party. Uh, and if we don't have the choice to not disclose it to a third party, then we have not made a choice to disclose it to a third party. I love that. That's a great, I that's a great, that's a great, I, I, I love that logic. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's great logic. 
Um, and, um, and, and we'll definitely, <laughs> we'll definitely be using that. And I think just to add to your point, which is slightly a slightly separate point, but like just in addition to the point you're making, um, one thing that we've seen is we've actually seen the Supreme Court really chipping away at the third party doctrine in recent years. And I actually believe that if you were to take, um, the ways that the third party doctrine is used today and bring that up to the Supreme Court again in a case, um, particularly when you talk about the financial surveillance that we see under things like the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, again, I'm sorry to be so U.S. centric, but in the United States, the, the sort of massive amount of financial surveillance that we see here, I think if you took that up to the Supreme Court, um, that there's a very good chance that they would say, actually, this is totally unconstitutional. And the reason for that is exactly as you're saying, um, the types of information that you could get from someone's transactions through third party. Let's let's even just limit it to financial transactions. I mean, forget about everything else. Just just in the context of financial transactions. In the 1970s, when you had um there was a Supreme Court case, US v. Miller, where the Supreme Court held that the Bank Secrecy Act, which is the sort of law about the that that government uses for financial surveillance, um the 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 Supreme Court held at the time, well, the Bank Secrecy Act, as it exists now, is not unconstitutional because of this thing called the third party doctrine. And that was in the 1970s. Um, but when you compare the amount of information that the government was able to collect and that the government was able to glean about your life from your financial transactions at the time to what you can learn today from someone's financial transaction, it's a totally different story. Like, really, your financial transactions are painting a really intimate portrait of your life, right? This is like who you're interacting with, where, what your physical location is, what you're reading, what causes you're contributing to, what organizations you're part of. Like, this is a really intimate portrait of your life that comes just from your financial transactions, right? Forgetting about everything else for a moment. Um, and I think um, if you were to take this up to the Supreme Court, they would rely on some of their recent precedent where there have been things like location data, um, uh, cell site location data where the Supreme Court has looked at this type of data that's been collected and, and looked at it in the context of the third party doctrine and has basically said, look, this is a really intimate portrait of someone's life. And this is not what we had in mind when we came up with the third party doctrine, you know, 50 years ago. So, um, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I do think that there's a real possibility that at some point in the, in the not too distant future, um, you know, we will at minimum that we'll continue to get cases chipping away at the third party doctrine and that we might be able to get it in the context of financial transactions. And I also love your additional point, um, which is like, well, wait a second. Aren't we supposed to just the third party doctrine imply that we're supposed to have a choice as to whether we turn over our information in the first place? And if so, doesn't that imply that we should have the ability to make financial transactions anonymously, which I love. I think that's such a great addition. And um, I think. Um, I think I, I think that's great. Thanks. Not to address any switch topics, Ian, but I'm really curious if you or maybe even anyone else on this call has heard about the reason, uh, reason like AI powered Bing chat spills of like kind of like sec like due to secret prompt injection attacks. So I think pretty much what happened is that folks were able to get Bing to reveal that A, it's internally called Sydney, and then to reveal a few other instructions that it was given to operate the way it's operating. And I think that even here, you could make a really, uh, including taking care of different copyright laws when revealing its information, which apparently it's not always so very good at. But I think because we got in this whole kind of train when talking about privacy implications, now that we have different AI toolings that we probably see a lot more applications of. And so I think even here, you could argue that like, 
We need a much better, just like literacy, like privacy literacy and like applications even for different companies becoming more privacy aware, even when creating their own chatbots, because they're literally like uh, leaking internal information to potential attackers. And I think that we will probably see a lot more of that as AI is mixing and remixing individual bits that, that humans feed them. And so I'm really curious just to see how that just makes perhaps even like some privacy concerns a bit more conscious, even in the eyes of the folks that are putting out these models, because it's literally revealing some of their internal problems that they're giving the AI. I think it's it's going to be an interesting space to monitor. Yeah, I, I wonder, oh my God, we're really racing through this session today, but I really wonder like perhaps from... You know, we've talked a lot about like what individual companies can be doing, what what individuals can be doing, and and so forth to you know push for push for potential more privacy preserving applications or even activism. But I'm super curious. You know, we often talk about the fact that there is also a big argument to make to the really just like U.S. government that they should be really worried about or, or caring for their citizens' privacy and vis-a-vis -vis respect to other nation states too. And so I'm super curious, do you see geopolitically any kind of like large scale risks or opportunities arising more on international playing field, perhaps that, you know, like really would make a good case for US, for US governments to like actually take a, take a bit more of a privacy preserving stance for, for their own citizens? Yeah, totally. Um, so I guess two, two things that I want to say, um, in response to that. The first, just on the point about AI and privacy, the thing that, um, I mean, like one area where I find this concerning, though I think this has probably been a concern for a long time, not just recently, um, is de-anonymization. Um, I think, um, one of the things that people don't realize is, um, how easy it is on the back end for different pieces of your data that you've sort of uh, left uh, around different places in the internet to be correlated with each other um, and to actually be de-anonymized. So, um, and I think that that's actually been true for a long time. I don't necessarily know that it's actually so new with with the latest AI tools. Um, it's been true for a long time that it's it's sort of trivially easy to de-anonymize data, um, that even if you think you haven't associated particular pieces of data with um, you know, you as a person that in fact you, you really have. Um, but I think as we get tools, um, um, AI tools that are even more powerful, our ability to leave tracks that are anonymous is, um, is in, is, is, is really in, in sort of vanishingly difficult. Um, and, and that's also true with financial transactions, right? I mean, you like the, you have privacy coins like Zcash, um, where you don't have a public chain and it's not pseudonymous, but most cryptocurrencies are pseudonymous, right? They are, they are not anonymous. Um, and, and you can see on a chain that user one, two, three sent one Bitcoin to user four, five, six, um, you know, at such and such time. And it turns out that there are all sorts of tools that make it increasingly trivially easy to actually de-anonymize, um, you know, those, those pseudonymous transactions. And so what we, what we might think of as anonymous transactions are actually um, are actually can actually be de-anonymized. And not only that, but they're permanently and publicly recorded for everyone to see forever and ever. Amen. Right. So, um, so it's, um, I think, um, increasingly difficult as we get these more and more powerful tools, um, to actually really truly be in any way anonymous on the internet. Um, and then in terms of your second question about this sort of global stage and, you know, where privacy comes in, there's this really interesting tension, right? Because on the one hand, you'll see things like um, when when President Biden put out his executive order on cryptocurrency, 
included certain pieces that talked about the importance of cryptocurrency for facilitating private transactions and um, facilitating, you know, um, uh, sort of privacy, right? Which is a really fantastic and and great um, position to take. And then at the same time, in the same breath, all of these regulatory agencies are increasingly extending mass surveillance into cryptocurrency, including including Biden's own um, you know, sort of infrastructure package, right? Um, and so um, I think the government should, um, like it's a great narrative and a for government for the US government to to really take uh uh citizens' private uh, privacy seriously, not just when it comes to privacy from corporations, which they seem really good about. Governments seem very good about talking about privacy when it comes to corporations, but also privacy when it comes to individuals uh, from the government. Um, and I think um, it's very easy for the government to talk about how much they care about individuals' privacy. Um, but then suddenly the next thing you know, they're asking for backdoors and, and encryption, right? And uh, ways for the government who are the good guys to uh, to be able to access information. Um, and I think um, I think that governments should really understand that like, if you have a backdoor, it, it means it's it's not safe for anyone. And I think governments should really understand that privacy um, from companies also means, and it, even more importantly, is privacy from the government. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that Mark also often points out is really just the, is that, you know, with, if we ever want to have something like an actually functioning crypto commerce that where we actually also send perhaps physical things and transact through the internet using that and using cryptocurrency, then it's pretty unsustainable to actually have, to, to be able to be identified uh, by using something like pu public blockchain. And I think that, you know, we've already made that mistake, <laughs> like many of us have, and that's probably too late to trace back those transactions. But I think switching over uh, as soon as possible, I think to more privacy-preserving solutions would be, um, it's, it's pretty present. In the last two minutes, perhaps you want to paint us a picture of like, if everything goes well and we make the right decisions, you know, what's a positive world we can be moving towards in the next five years. And then some recommendations, like some action item that, that you recommend others to take from this. And they can be Filecoin Foundation specific. They can be like general, uh, general recommendations, whatever you may want to share with folks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the Filecoin Foundation, what we're doing is um, we're building a decentralized version of the web where you don't have to live your life through just a handful of corporations um, and where users can be in control of their own data um, and they don't have to rely on just, you know, Google, Amazon, uh, you know, and Microsoft um, to protect their data and to keep their data secure from attackers and to protect their civil liberties when their government requests. Um, and instead, um, users can be in control of their own data. Um, so we really believe in, in creating a decentralized version of the web. Um, and that's really where I see, um, technology going in a, in a positive way. Um, and, and that's really what we're building at Filecoin Foundation and the, the future that, that we see, um, which is one that is, um, I, you know, I, I hope is the one that in, in five to 10 years is, is the future that, that we're living in. And, um, so we're really, uh, hoping to to build that future um, by building the decentralized web. Wonderful. Well, I welcome everyone to be contributing to this mission. Thank you so, so much, Marta, for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for helping me moderate this collaborative podcast at this point. Uh, and yeah, really excited to be chatting with all of you later. And Marta, it was such a, a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for your breadth and wealth of knowledge. And I, I think we live in interesting times. And 
And yeah, I think with AI now in the mix, it's going to be an interesting offense defense play in the next few years. Thank you everyone for joining. And I can't wait to see you at the next one. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure, Allison, and so nice to meet you all.